right. We are in Revelation. And we finished up uh, the demon locusts and the first woe. By the way, one of the things that almost always comes up when you go through uh, chapter 9 in Revelation is that the idea of demon locusts are a metaphor for an armored attack. Well, the second half of number 9 is, in fact, an armored attack. So God is perfectly capable of talking about the one. And so I, I believe that the demon locusts are, in fact, bugs of some kind. And most bugs that I know of that sting have their sting in their tail. You know, wasps and all that kind of stuff. So I don't have any problem with this being some kind of a natural plague. All right, so we're in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, which is 200 million. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's head, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Okay, this I don't have any problem being an armored attack. For those of you who have been around warfare and explosives and gunfire and all that kind of stuff, lots of it, it smells pretty bad, and you got fire coming out of the, out of the head, and smoke and all that kind of stuff. So I don't have any problem with that being a, a, a literal attack. Uh, of course, the question always is, where did all those guys come from? And there's lots of answers to that. I don't have any idea which is correct or if any of them is correct. Clearly, China, with its one-child policy, has now gotten itself in a position where males are grossly out of balance with females. So what you have is a whole bunch of young men coming up with no prospect of getting married. And there is, in fact, a brisk business in China of snatching women and selling them on the black market for marriage. India could be, I mean, certainly they could raise an army that big. I don't know that they have incentive to do that. Uh, the other possibility is Islam. And again, if you look at all of Islam, there's a whole lot of them. And so the idea of all of Islam coming against Israel is, again, not at all out of the question. So, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So, a couple of things here. Since we're looking at this from John's perspective, we see that all of this is being orchestrated by God. 
In other words, you have a, an angel that blows a trumpet and the next thing uh, shows up. You have a seal that gets opened and the next thing... So it's all being orchestrated by God. That is not necessarily obvious to the people on the earth. We have a, a privileged point of view, if you understand what I'm saying. We're looking at it from John's point of view or, or from God's point of view through John. And to the people on the earth, it simply looks like a great big war and you know, maybe some kind of an astronomical event. We talked about the possible passage of a large planet and then the debris that follows it. So to humanity on earth, this could all look, say it another way, to those who don't want to believe in God, this can all be explained as natural phenomenon. Okay? So if you don't want to believe in God, all of these things, oh, well, you know, that's, we just, you know, got thumped by a meteor, an asteroid. Nothing supernatural there. Uh, we've got this, you know, mutant bugs that are flying around and, and stinging everybody. Well, global warming or whatever, you know, I mean, there, there, there will be a scientific explanation for this. And of course, you know, big wars are nothing new. So, you know, the idea that God is orchestrating this major war is, well, you know. So anyway, and here we have another one of these hiatuses. Remember, the, the structure of the book is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and then hiatus 7. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, hiatus 7. So, and again, it's my perspective that 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 are sequential. And they are going to happen in that order, and we're going to see them happen in that order, and it's not anything uh, allegorical. The hiatus between 6 and 7 would be sort of like if you're watching a movie and you're watching the action, the action is going along, and then meanwhile over here, and you go back and you fill in some uh, background and stuff like that, and you sort of catch up what's going on in this other place, and then you go back to the action. So that's the way I view the hiatus here, is meanwhile, all right, so uh, I'm in chapter 10. We're going to spend probably the rest of the hour on chapter 10. Yes? The question was, as we're looking at these sequential things, the, the catastrophes that happen as the seals are open, for example, and so forth, I would, I would say that they are not specifically localized. So you have a third of the sea. That's a pretty big area. And you can't get a third of the sea in the immediate vicinity of Israel, for example, because all you got there is the Mediterranean. So if you're going to do a third of the sea, you've got to hit somewhere probably out in the Pacific. Okay? So I see this as being worldwide, but not everything happens everywhere in the world at once. So, you know, you have this, whatever happens that causes these demon locusts to come out of the bottomless pit, it isn't real clear to me that they necessarily then spread over the whole world. They may you know, spread over all of Europe or all of Asia, kind of a thing. But again, Scripture is silent on that, so I really don't know. But I'm, I'm sort of expecting that, based on the end of chapter 9, I'm expecting that these are all going to be things that people are going to be able to explain away. And if it's way widespread, that becomes more and more difficult. I, I see it as a third of humanity all over the world dying. That doesn't mean that the third is evenly distributed over the surface of the earth. So you may wipe out a little island that's got 
50 million people on it. And so the number of casualties in that place is sort of a spike in the distribution. And some other place, you might not have anybody die. And in fact, I believe that there will be lots of places where nobody dies because I think that's what the 144,000's job is, is to round up God's people in safe places, which they will know. You have had things happen up to now that have also caused mass casualties. So just a literal reading of the text leads you to a third of whatever constitutes humanity at that point, not a third of where we are now. Okay, so having done all that, let's now go to chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be revealed, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Okay, we're going to camp out here for a while. Now I'm going to skip the little scroll, because the little scroll gets talked about again toward the end of the chapter, and I'll talk about it then. First off, the seven thunders, that is explicitly sealed and not written down. I have no idea what it is other than the voice of God often in Scripture sounds like thunder. So you can certainly have a good chance of being right if it is your belief that it's the voice of God saying seven things. But I don't know. So we'll just leave that the way it is. What I want to do is the seventh trumpet, which is future to this point in, this, in the book. So what he says is, in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be revealed just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Okay, so that's where I want to spend a little little time. And we'll come back and do right foot on the sea, left foot on the land, little scroll, all that kind of stuff. We'll pick up those symbols in the next paragraph, okay? So, if you go to 1 Corinthians... 15, and go down to verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, 
it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised in spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of the dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Ding, ding, ding. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now, what I am suggesting to you is you need to cross this mighty angel who is saying the seventh trump is coming, and at that point uh, a mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And what I'm saying to you is that announcement is here in Corinthians. Okay, This is what's being talked about. And so what that does is it pegs the resurrection of the dead to the seventh trumpet. Paul says, at the last trumpet, the only place in Scripture that I know of where there are a sequence of trumpets, actually there's two places. One is here in Revelation and the other is Joshua in the battle of Jericho. Okay, there are, there are a sequence of seven trumpets there also. And of course, at the last trumpet, the kingdom of the enemy collapses and Israel goes in under the command of Joshua, Yeshua, and takes possession. So what I'm saying here is that the only other place where we got a sequence of trumpets is here in Revelation, and there are seven of them. And then Paul says, at the last trumpet, then will be the resurrection. So what I want to do now is back up a minute and unpack some of this stuff in Corinthians, because... What's being described here in Corinthians is being described in shorthand in Revelation. So to understand what's going on in Revelation, you've got to, to study the Corinthians passage. Did I say that so it made sense? Okay. So Paul talks about agriculture. Remember I've been saying for the last several months that if you can't reduce everything in Scripture to either agriculture or family, you're full of cornflakes? So what Paul is doing is explaining the resurrection in terms of agriculture. And first off, he's saying, in verse 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be. In other words, this body that we have right now, sitting here in these chairs in Boulder, Colorado, is not the same as the body that will be resurrected. This is only the seed of that body. So what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. And then he goes on to, go, to give uh, a whole bunch of metaphors indicating that it's the seed that determines the crop. Okay? 
So if you, if you plant humans, you get humans. You plant animals, you get animals. You plant birds, you get birds. You plant fish, you get fish. You plant wheat, you get wheat, whatever. So whatever you plant is what you get. Okay? And, and what I'm suggesting to you is that this body that you are in and this life you are leading is basically constructing the seed that will then grow after it dies into the resurrection body that is to be. So this one is sown in corruption. Well, do we live in corruption? Most of us. This one is sown in corruption. It will be raised incorruptible. This one is sown mortal, which means it dies. Come back to agriculture. You take a seed and you sow it in the ground, that seed dies. In other words, it doesn't you don't get to put it in the ground, have it produce a stalk of wheat, go back and get your seed and save it for next time. The seed is consumed in that process. Now, it will bring forth fruit and more seed will come from it than what you planted. I mean, that's the whole purpose of agriculture is to get more than you put, more than you sowed, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense. Why would you put perfectly good food in the dirt if you weren't going to get anything back except what you put in? doesn't make any sense at all. So the seed, what? Oh, oh very good. I, I like that. That's actually a very good insight. Bunny trail. You know what one of the hottest sections in Barnes and Noble is right now? Teen paranormal romance. Do you have any doubt that what the stories are with the Nephilim are just exactly what we're talking about there. You understand what I'm saying? What's being sold right now is the idea that paranormal sex is really cool. Go back to Genesis 6. You have the Benai Elohim, which some of us believe are supernatural or paranormal beings having sex with human women and having giants and so forth as the offspring. And what I'm saying is, if the Nephilim showed up in Barnes and & Noble and were going to go picking up teenage girls, because this is who those things are aimed at, they wouldn't have any trouble at all. Interesting. All right, anyway, back to your comment, which is, you said it better than I was going to say it. What, what we're saying here in, in Seeds is the body and the character that you sow, which is what you are building here in this life, you are building basically the seed that is going to be planted in the grave and is going to then rise up in a new immortal body. Everybody starts off with more or less the same protoplasm. The thing that changes over the course of a lifetime is the information that you put into that protoplasm to change who you are. And as I've said before, I have no doubt whatsoever that when we are resurrected, you all are going to look a whole lot better than you look sitting here. But I'm going to recognize every one of you because I'm going to know your character. I'm going to know who you are. I'm going to know your personality. So although you may have a full head of hair, Brian, and you may look really buff, I'm still going to recognize that's Brian. You understand what I'm saying? 
So what you're doing here, and Galene described it as gene splicing, but what you're doing is you're basically constructing the seed that you are going to sow for the body that is going to be raised. Into yourself that will be your later self. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and again, I'll say that in, so it gets on the tape. A seed is, is the bearer of life and it is also the bearer of information. In other words, all the information that is needed to make an oak tree is in an, is in an acorn. There is no other information required. It's all there. Similarly, when a man and a woman come together, all of the information needed to make a baby is there. So what you're doing over your life is you are adding information, and in that you are changing the seed that you are sowing, because information is what the seed is. Seed is a bearer of life, it's a bearer of information. So what you're doing is you're adding information to the seed that you are getting ready to plant when you have lived, one hopes, a good full life. I say that's all made sense? And that's what Paul is saying here, 42. So, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. So obviously you wouldn't put your body in the ground unless you had perished. Yeah? And everything you say just makes sense and so The comment was that if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap to the flesh, and if you sow to the spirit, you'll reap to the spirit. And, and in this context... If what you are sowing is to the flesh all of your life, then the stuff that's in the resurrection body is not spiritual. That information is simply not there because you haven't sown that information into yourself as you've lived. Good, very good. So what is sown perishable is raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, in other words, this life that we live is, is full of, I don't know about you, but I've done lots of scummy things, so sowing in dishonor is, is something I can really relate to. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a living spirit. But it is not the spirit that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. So what he's saying is you can't skip straight to resurrection. The spiritual is a product of the physical. What? Where, where we lose you. Verse 46. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. So what he's saying is, you can't just walk out and say, Shazam, field, wheat. You've got to sow a seed first, and then the seed will grow wheat in time. Similarly, you can't just say, all right, we're all going to be transported into disembodied spirits. You've got to go through the natural because the natural is what is the seed that produces the spiritual. With the exception of those who are still walking around here when Yeshua himself comes back at the last trumpet. It says we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. But you will have gone through some spiritual life at that point. In other words, he's not going to come back and just manufacture a whole bunch of new spirit beings. He's going to use the seed that is provided, which is humanity. Is that so it made sense? In other words, the only way you can get to a spiritual being is to have first been a physical one. There aren't going to be creation de novo out of fresh souls, a new set of people. 
everybody that's going to be there is going to have lived a biological life and will either have died and been sown as a seed to be raised from the dead or will be translated when Yeshua himself comes if they are still alive. But everybody has to go through being human. Okay? Yeah? What the scripture says is those who are in Messiah, those of us who have made a choice, you will be resurrected first. Everybody gets resurrected at the second resurrection, and those who are resurrected at the second resurrection are then judged. Anyway, all right, let's, let's go on. We'll never finish. So anyway, what I'm suggesting to you here is what you do now determines what kind of resurrection you have. In other words, you're building the seed now that's going to grow your resurrection body. Now, if it happens to be that the Lord doesn't come back right away, you will wind up planting that seed in the grave and it will be raised from the soil. Okay, And, and remember, as I said earlier, in order for a seed to produce fruit and germinate, the seed has to die. Because it is not the case that you can plant your grain of wheat, the wheat stalk comes up, you harvest, then you dig back down and get your seed back. The seed's gone. It is consumed in that process. Okay? And if it's not consumed, then you don't get any fruit. Okay? And so what God is showing us with an agricultural metaphor is how it works. And the second thing that I'm saying to you is that that resurrection is going to be at the seventh trumpet. And remember I said the first seven seals are by way of authenticating his claim to the title. He is fully man. He is fully God. He owns the place. It is his by right and by deed. The second set of seven, which is the seven trumpets, is the traditional announcement of the coming of the king. Starting back with Jericho. Walking around the thing, blowing trumpets seven times. We're coming. And on the seventh trumpet, in we go. And on the seventh trumpet, here he comes. And he's going to put his foot, feet on the ground and he's going to rule the place with a rod of iron. Okay, so the second, the seven trumpets is the coming of the king. And of course, the seventh bowls, seven bowls are then the king taking vengeance on his enemies. That's all over scripture too. All right, so that's the, the seventh trumpet. So all right, now let's do the little bit with a little, little scroll. So we're now in uh, chapter 10, Revelation, verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told... You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Okay, so there's there's another eating of the scroll, and that's in Ezekiel. In that Ezekiel chapter 3. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you to fill your stomach with it. And I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Okay, so you have eating a scroll, which is sweet as honey. And then he goes on from there to write the book of Ezekiel, where he prophesies 
to all of Israel. What's going on in Revelation is similar because John is going to be given this scroll to eat and he is then going to be told, you must again prophesy to about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So just as Ezekiel was given a scroll to eat that was sweet as honey in his mouth and he was then to go forward and prophesy, same thing with John. Now, the additional piece of information here in Revelation is although the scroll was sweet as honey in his mouth, it turned his stomach bitter. Okay, that piece of information is not in the Ezekiel passage. So, let's talk about this little scroll that you eat, and it's sweet as honey in your mouth, and it turns your stomach bitter. And I will suggest to you right up front, without any quibble or peradventure, that we're talking about the New Testament. Compare the New Testament to the entire Tanakh, it is a little scroll. In other words, it's a smaller scroll. And if you read the New Testament, especially if you read it with 2,000 years of Christian understanding, it is sweet as honey in your mouth. What happens is you have the gospel of grace, if you will, that basically everything's forgiven, and all you have to do is say this you know, little prayer, and you're in, and everything is good, and no more judgment, no more harsh law, don't have to follow any rules, no law anymore. So what I'm suggesting to you is that is the under, contemporary understanding in the Christian church of the New Testament. I'm vastly oversimplifying, but that's the message of a lot of churches. Huh? Well, yeah, but they're not, they're not planning to be in Revelation. They're planning to be raptured out of here. To people who believe that way, this part of the book of Revelation is academic only. It's there to be left behind. You know, so that the people who are left behind will have this thing that they can read and recognize the error of their ways and be saved out of the Great Tribulation. Or words to that effect. What is the bitterness? The lack of law. The lack of Torah. A life lived without Torah is bitter. Okay? A life lived lawlessly is ultimately bitter. So the freedom that the modern church promises when they hand you the New Testament first, here, read the New Testament, start in the book of John. Anybody ever heard that? Huh? And then then you're good to go. Yep. So what they've done is they've handed you this scroll and it tastes sweet as honey. Your sins are forgiven. There's no more rules. God loves you. Jesus lo- actually, Jesus loves you. We're not too sure about the God of the Old Testament. So I'm not saying everybody's the same, but there, there, there are wide variations on this. And I'm not saying that all Christians are lawless. I mean, a lot of them are, in fact, very well behaved. We don't spit and we don't chew and we don't go with them that do. You know, that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm not, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but I'm, what I'm saying is, is this is what I think is being described here. Now, the question that you have to ask is, why? Why what? Why what you ask? To that, you have to go to Matthew chapter 13. And to put you into perspective, 
in the previous chapter, the Pharisees had attributed the works that Yeshua did to Beelzebub. And that's where you have the problem with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and all that kind of stuff. In other words, Yeshua is doing miracles and all that kind of stuff, and the Pharisees are saying, this guy's not for real. So at that point, what he does is he switches into parables. And after chapter 13, everything is in parables. Before chapter 13, everything is straight. And his disciples come to him and say, in verse 10 of Matthew 13, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Now, the first thing that they said is, We don't get it. We don't understand what you're saying. So they're, at, they're going to ask him, in another version of this, they're going to ask him, what does it mean? So they don't understand it. And here in Matthew, they're saying, basically, we don't understand it. They don't understand it. How come you dropped into code speak, boss? And his answer is, he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So Isaiah, when he gets his mission to preach to Israel, is told, you will preach, but you will preach in a way that nobody will understand. Yeshua is saying the same thing. I'm going to continue to preach right up until my crucifixion, but I'm going to speak in ways that nobody will understand. And furthermore, I am going to commission as my chief prophet, Paul, who is completely incomprehensible. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, I said it jokingly, but I am serious. Okay, Paul is extremely hard to understand. Peter himself says so. And what I'm saying to you is that's all part of code speak. Which is to say, God is telling everybody the truth, but he's telling them the truth in such a way that those who have closed their eyes and closed their ears and made their hearts dull will not understand it. If you understand with, their, with your heart and turn, what's the word turn there? Repent, repent. If you understand with your heart and repent, then I would heal you. And what he's saying in Isaiah is, Israel has so far gone that we're going to go into exile. That's determined. They're going. So now what we're going to do is we're going to speak to them and we're going to continue to tell the truth, but we're going to tell them the truth in a way that they won't understand because the exile will not be interrupted. They're going. Did you have something, Brian? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, I agree with that. The, the comment was that the way that you understand with your heart and turn and be healed is you start walking in the commandments of God. You start walking in obedience to God. And as you walk in obedience to God, you come to understand. 
So what you do is you get yourself into repentance and then you get yourself into obedience. And then God opens things up to you and you start to understand what this stuff is saying. If you come into it with, I you know, say this little prayer and then I go back to doing whatever it was I was doing before and I don't really have any interest in understanding God's Torah, which is the beginning of his book, the thing he gave Israel because he loved them, and you don't ever get to that point, then you'll never come to an understanding of this and you will go through your life with a dull heart. But what I'm suggesting to you is back to this revelation that the little scroll is in fact, in this case, the New Testament. And it is deliberately designed by God just as the book of Isaiah is deliberately designed by God, just as the parables are deliberately designed by God to tell the truth in a way that is not understandable by someone who is not in obedience to God. Did I say that so it was clear? Yeah. One more time. Sure. What I'm saying is that the New Testament is exactly the same as the book of Isaiah, is exactly the same as the parables of Jesus, and they are designed so that they tell the truth, but they tell it in a way that someone with a dull heart and closed eyes and closed ears will not understand. In other words, they are spoken in code. And the only way to break that code is to come into repentance and come into obedience to God's Torah, and then you will come to understand. And there's no other way to do it. Paul, I think, is very much in that same spirit. He's writing things that are true. And when I read Paul today, after something like 15 years in Torah, I find Paul very clear. He's teaching Torah to dumb Gentiles. He tells the truth, and it's very, very clear. But if you come to it from a perspective of you haven't read the Torah, Paul is very confusing. Yeah, all of the Bible, even if it's not understood, is constructive notice. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.